Thank you, Jim. I um, want to invite our children to Children's Church. Your teacher will meet you at the back there. And as they're going, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Lord, it's um, startling to be at Acts chapter 28 so soon. It seems like the story was just getting going. But um, we're here. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear what you have to say. Lord, would you teach us what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ through your word. And I pray that this would be a communal event that we would all join in together and that we would be all working to make disciples of ourselves, of each other, of those who don't know you yet. And may you accomplish all of these things by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So um, after last week's marathon, <laughs> that was all of chapter 27, that was a long one. And uh, so I decided, well, we'll just do 10 verses and it'll be much easier this week, right? So um, what happened was last week, it was 40-something it was verses, 44 verses, right? But it all took place on the sea. So if we were watching it like a TV series or something, a television show, the camera never left the sea. We were constantly on the water. And what happens today is we are going to be on the island of Malta. And it's only 10 verses. So the scene is switched to the island of Malta. But the time at sea was about two weeks. Remember he said it's been 14 days since you've eaten. So take some food. So they've been at sea for a little bit. What we're going to find at verse 11 tells us they were on Malta for three months. And it's only 10 verses. So there's, there's something going on here. Luke is trying to sum something up here. He's, he's, he's telling the story in much com more compact form. The other thing you'll notice about as we go through this is... Luke is telling this story from the perspective of the Maltans exclusively. It is like he is stepping into their role to see what they have to say. So as we're going through the sermon, we'll look at it kind of from the Maltese perspective. How are the islanders understanding this? What does it mean to them? But we'll also inject what we know from outside the story. So it's kind of an interesting little section here as we begin the last chapter, as we moved into this, is we're getting a kind of a unique perspective. What I think this is about, what I think Luke is trying to tell us here, and this is really one of those key discipleship principles, is he's showing us what it means to minister like Jesus. Paul is going to do that. That's what it's going to look like. So the, the story breaks into three basic little pieces. Delivery, right? They were delivered from the sea, verses one and two. There's an assessment. The people are trying to figure out what, who are these folks? Who are these strangers that washed up on the beach? That's three through six. And then finally, Paul gets into ministry, 7 through 10. So that's, that's where we're going to go. Delivery, assessment, and ministry. And we're going to hopefully learn how to minister like Jesus. So it says when uh, the very first verse begins, after we were brought safely through, um, that is a real clear indication from Luke that he's tying this story to the previous story because chapter uh, 27 ended um, and so it was that we were all brought safely to land. So it's not word for word, but it's that same thing. And he repeats it. He picks it up in, verse, in chapter 28 and says it again, when we were brought safely through. So they have been delivered from the storm. And now they've, they've gone safely through. We're supposed to see this connection. I should have preached this at the end of last week, right? Should have done all of 28 and these first 10 verses because they're connected. I thought we did enough last week. <laughs> I thought we covered enough territory. 
this stands on its own. But that's how Luke is writing it. It's he, he gives us those verbal clues to try to connect it back, to, to draw us back to what he'd said before. So that's what he, he does. He says, when they were brought safely through, they found out that they were island, on the island called Malta. Um, so Malta is a little tiny island. It's, it's, I think, 15 miles long by eight miles wide. It's not very big. Um, it's about 58 miles south of Sicily. So if you picture Italy as the boot and the big toe, uh, it's kicking the island of Sicily, and then just south of that is the island of Malta, a little small island. Um, Malta was um, populated, or, or they, they have traces of civilizations as, back, as far back as something like uh, 5,000 years BC or something. It was a very old civilization that was there, but the Malta that we're used to seeing was colonized about 1,000 BC by the Phoenicians. Uh, the, the empire of Phoenicia was really the ring of the Mediterranean. So northern Africa, southern Spain, over to the islands by Greece and that kind of stuff. That was where the Phoenician Empire was. So that's who the Maltans are. The, the people from Malta, that's basically who they are, is they're coming from Phoenician background. Um, they speak a language called uh, Punic, which is basically means it's, it's Phoenician. Um, that's why. When uh, Paul calls him here, he says the, um, the native people in the next verse. Uh, fortunately, our translations handle it well. The King James translates it as the barbarous people. And the reason is because they were called barbarians. They were called barbaroi in Greek. Now, we think of a barbarian as, you know, carrying a club and, and, and beating people up uncouth, mean, you know, probably violent. That's not what the Greeks meant by barbarous. It was what's called an onomatopoeia. The word sounds like what it's explaining. To the Greek and the Latin ear, these foreign languages sounded like people going bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbarians as they bar, bar, bar. That's, what's, that's what it means here is, is the people on Malta were called barbarians because they probably spoke this Punic language rather than primarily speaking Greek or Latin. So they're, they're barbarians, but the, the better way to translate it is the natives, the islanders, something like that. As a matter of fact, I will probably refer to them as the islanders quite a bit. Although Maltese sounds pretty cool. I just think of the Maltese Falcon and, and Humphrey Bogart and how cool everybody was in that. Um, but I'll, I'll probably refer to them as, uh, or hopefully refer to them as islanders so I don't go off on some weird tangent. <laughs> so they get to the island. They find out they're on Malta. Picture this for a second. Don't, don't forget what we get, went through last week. They've been out on the Mediterranean Sea for over two weeks in a raging storm, driven all over the place. So the islanders of Malta are looking out at the Mediterranean and seeing this gigantic storm, probably getting some of the weather from it. The winds and the rains are, are hitting the island. But they're seeing this storm rage across the Mediterranean for weeks. This is uncommon, especially, I mean, they get storms at this time of year, but this is a bad one. So what happened is they ran their ship aground. As a matter of fact, there's still a bay called the Bay of St. Paul. That's the, the, and, and for all indications, any, any historical evidence, that's the place they ran aground. And so the capital, the capital city on the island is uh, the Bay of St. Paul. That's the name of it. So this is where they landed. This is what happened. They ran their ship in, and it got stuck on a reef and started breaking up. So they all hop in the water. They grab uh, planks or they swim and they wind up on the shore overnight. This is happening at the night. So this is the next morning when, um, when they're laying on the shore. Be an islander for a second. 
there's probably close to 300, you can't count them, there's probably close to 300 people laying on the beach, soaked to the bone, dirty from the, from the sand and the sea, exhausted. Because remember what they did is they had a little bit of food, they had some bread, and then they hopped in the water. And this wasn't like, you know, your pool. This was driving waters and, and, and you know, a violent storm. And they swum to the shore. And so the islanders come out and they find, looks like about 300 people laying on the shore, exhausted. So what Luke says is the native people showed us unusual kindness. The word for kindness is philanthropos. They showed us unusual philanthropy. And when you break that down, philos is love and anthropos is humanity, an unusual love for humanity. That's what these Maltese people are like, is they see these folks in need and they go to them. They care for them. They go out and the first thing they do is they kindle a fire. Now, 279 people probably are not going to fit around one fire. It's entirely possible they built a handful of fires, maybe four or five, so that the people could get around it and warm up. They need to dry out. They need to, to um, get some heat in their bodies. They're going to need some food pretty soon. So they build these fires and they begin to warm up. Now it says, because it had begun to rain and it was cold, um, this is probably October, maybe early November when this happens. And the thing is, the temperatures on Malta at that time are around 50. Not terribly cold, not the most comfortable thing, but go get soaked to the bone and go walk out in 50 degree weather and tell me if that's not cold. Oh, wait, wait till the wind is blowing and then decide, is this cold? Yeah, this is cold and it's beginning to rain. So they can't quite dry out. So they need a fire built. Uh, they need to begin to warm themselves and dry themselves out some. Um, also, yeah, the typical temperature is 50. Does that mean that every summer it was you know, 50 degrees and the, and the thermometer stopped? Temperatures vary. So when people talk about climate change, yeah, that's what climate does is it changes. <laughs> it just varies. We've had a wonderful summer, haven't we? We went to Disneyland on Thursday and it was beautiful. It was barely 80. It was just a gorgeous day. Last year we would have been baked to death. So just because it's typically 50 doesn't mean it always is. It might have been cold. Also, there's this raging storm I think I mentioned out on the, on the uh, Mediterranean Sea that might be driving some winds and rain there too. So this is, this is the situation they're in. They've got a handful of people stranded on the beach, freezing to death, and so they build a fire for them. And this is what Luke calls an unusual kindness, an unusual, unusual philanthropy. They care about people. The typical Roman approach was not necessarily that human beings have value and human beings deserve rights or anything. It was, well, you get what's coming. You know, that, that's, that's how the Romans thought about it. There was no universal human rights under Roman rule. You got whatever came. So that's the delivery from the storm. And they get delivered into the hands of the kindest people they could have run aground with. It's such a beautiful thing that happens. So here's what happens now, this assessment. So now Paul gathered a bundle of sticks to put them on the fire. Paul is no slacker. The guy can't sit still. So instead of letting everybody do everything, he, he says, let me go get some, some sticks. And he goes over and he picks up a bundle of sticks to throw on the fire. Um, he wants to help. As he's beginning to throw the sticks on the fire, a viper came out. A cruel beast came out of the sticks. Now, don't forget, Paul's got bad eyesight by all accounts. In Galatians, at the end of Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Um, he probably couldn't see terribly well. So to a man with poor eyesight, a bundle of sticks and a snake are pretty close. 
So he just picks up what he's picking up. And it says that he picked it up, and because of the heat, the viper came out. Um, snakes are cold-blooded. So when it's cold, they become dormant. They, they get more slothful. They sleep more. When they start warming up, that's when they get more agitated. So as Paul is grabbing these sticks and getting ready to throw them into the heat, this cold-blooded creature begins to wake up. And it strikes him. It fastened onto his hand. Um, now, today, on Malta, there are no venomous snakes. None. Um, so some, some critical scholars look at this and go, well, obviously, this was not a firsthand account. This was a legend that was woven into the Acts of the Apostles. And it's, you know, um, I call, I'm, I'm calling right now, I'm throwing the flag for chronological snobbery, panel, penalty of 10 yards. Because there are no snakes now, therefore, there have never been any snakes there. Uh, the UN reported in May of this year that around 1 million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction within many decades, more than ever before in human history. And one of the contributing factors, one of the main contributing factors to that is human-caused global warming. So if today we're looking at the possible extinction of a 1,000 species, isn't it entirely possible that one species on one island may have gone extinct because humans hunted them down? So let's not get, that's what I mean by, by throwing the flag on chronological snobbery. Um, just because they're not there now doesn't mean they're never there. Um, by the way, this may be where part of the legend of uh, St. Patrick came from. St. Patrick was never sainted. There was no indication that there were snakes on uh, Ireland that he chased away. Um, maybe they're picking this up and saying it was a kind of a thing because St. Patrick sailed to Ireland and, and brought the gospel with him. Who knows? Um, it's theory. It's kind of fun. So here's the other thing with, uh, with the snake fastening on his hand is venomous snakes don't do that. Venomous snakes strike. Um, so people are saying, well, this wasn't a venomous snake. There was no miracle. The snake bit him and it just, you know, he fell into the fire. And of course, he would have never died. Um, a second penalty comes out for chronological snobbery. The islanders are so stupid they can't tell that they don't have venomous snakes on their island, that they see a snake bite somebody and they go, well, it's never happened in the history of this island, but perhaps this man will die. It just doesn't make any kind of sense. So why then would the venomous snake strike and hang on to him? I can think of a couple reasons just off the top of my head. For example, the snake is cold. What do snakes do when they're cold? Not an awful lot. So as it begins to wake up and it strikes him out of fear, maybe it was just so, still so lethargic it couldn't recoil. Maybe because he's carrying it in a bundle of sticks, the snake struck at an odd angle and hung there. Not like it was biting, but it's just the, the fangs were stuck and couldn't release. And so he's walking around with a venomous snake on his hand going, well, check that out. So there's, there's an, any possible number of, of reasons that that happened other than it wasn't a poisonous snake or they didn't know what they were doing. So the snake bites him and is hanging on his hand and Paul shakes it off into the fire. Um, theoretically killing the snake, I would hope. Um, we don't want this venomous snakes crawling out and hurting somebody else. So now the people begin to make their assessment. They're looking at this crowd of people on the beach, the raging storm that's been going on. How do they assess this? Now, remember last week I talked about natural, awe natural, and supernatural worldviews. Now, awe natural is there's a spirit behind everything. 
this is kind of an unnatural people. There's a God behind everything. There's a God of the storm. There's a God of the sailors. There's a God of the sea. There's a God of the clouds. There's a God of the sun, a God of the moon. There's a God of the bay of the water. There's all of this. So there might be approaching this from that awe natural position. There is no nature. It's all spirits. When they look at Paul, they now have to back up and think, wait a minute. So they survived this raging, unnatural sea storm. Was that because a God delivered them from the storm or was a God trying to kill them in the storm? It could go either way. Not sure. Now we see this guy who is you know, kind of a big deal. He's kind of who everybody's listening to. A snake strikes him. So maybe what's going on here is he escaped the punishment that a God sent him on the sea and the God caught up with him on land and sent a snake to kill him. As a matter of fact, in, the, um, in most of, but not all of the modern translations, the word justice is capitalized. And what that's talking about there is the God Dike, or Dike. And she is a daughter of Zeus, and what she would do is she would um, minister justice. She would come to Zeus and talk about the, um, the injustice that was happening on earth. She would bring the word to him. So that was what her role was. And that's the same Greek word for justice. So maybe it's a personification of justice into this Greek goddess. Um, I don't know that the people would necessarily parse it out to two different things. There is justice, and then there's the god of justice. I think they, in their minds, it'd probably be one. So what they're saying is they're saying he escaped the god of the sea. Whatever god at the sea was trying to kill him escaped. But justice is the one who's going to get him. And so she sent a snake to kill him. Therefore, he must be the worst. He must be a murderer. He must be the worst kind of possible person that there is. And so these people who show unusual kindness, what they do is they waited for him to swell up or suddenly die. We'll just watch. This will tell us what happens. <laughs> so, yeah, you people are going to die on the shore, but you know what? If a snake bites you, you're on your own, buddy. To be fair, there's not a whole bunch they could do. You know, they didn't have anti-venom kits. They didn't, you know, the old Western thing where you cut it with a knife and suck the, the poison out. Yeah, that doesn't work very particularly well, um, you know, something like that. So they're waiting for him to either swell up or drop over dead. Now, swelling up, this is another little hint that these guys knew this was a poisonous snake. When a poisonous snake, a venomous snake bites, that's one of the things that happens as you swell up. Our poor little puppy found a rattlesnake and got struck on the nose. And so when he came running out of the bush, he had two little blood stains on his nose and he was yelping. And so I picked him up and ran to the car and then drove at um, unsafe driving speeds to get him to the vet. And you could see a bump beginning to form on his nose. By the end of the night, he looked like Snoopy. His nose was huge. So being bit by a venomous snake will result in you swelling up. Does this sound like people who don't know what venomous snakes do? They're sitting there watching. He's either going to swell up or he's going to drop over dead. So that's what they're waiting for. They want to figure out what are the gods up to? What are the gods trying to do here? Are they going to kill him or is he going to make it? But what winds up happening is they survive. He, he, nothing happens to him. He shakes the, the, the snake off, probably wipes the blood away, and goes on about his business. And the people are watching. It's just watched for a very long time. They're sitting there waiting for this to happen, and it never happens. So what's going on? Well, the storm didn't kill him, 
And, and remember I said when, when Paul was facing the storm, he was being very realistic about it. His first reaction was, we should not leave Fair Havens because I know, I, I, mean, I recognize this weather pattern, we're going to suffer loss of life and a cargo and ship and everything. He was very realistic. He wasn't triumphalistic and say, well, you know, you guys are all going to die, but I'll be fine because God told me I'm going to Rome. He, he was very realistic about it. This time, <laughs> I feel for Paul, he's probably like, look, I survived this raging storm at sea and a snake's going to kill me? I don't think so. It, it just doesn't happen. This is actually something that is not terribly out of line with what Jesus said. So when Jesus is seven, sending out the 72 in Luke 10, um, after they come back, they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, even though I've given you this authority, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't be so, so thrilled that nothing can hurt you. Rather, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so that's exactly what we saw Paul do, is he gets bitten by a snake and he doesn't go around, hey, do you see what I got? They bit me, watch, nothing's going to happen. He doesn't rejoice in that. He's very down to earth about it, but he also doesn't freak out and worry about the fact that he's been bitten by a snake and now I'm not going to make it to Rome and all my plans are crushing around my, my, my head. He's okay, he's going to be okay. So once they look at him and they sit for a while and he doesn't swell up and he doesn't drop over dead, they come to a different conclusion. There must be something else going on here. Um, he must be a god. Um, these folks are steeped in a polytheistic worldview. This is not you know, a bunch of superstitious barbarians who don't know anything. This is the reasonable assumption, is somebody with that much power that could survive such a raging storm, that could survive a snake bite, a person with that kind of power must be some sort of a god, a god maybe we don't know about. So they changed their mind about him. Um, remember I said Luke is telling the story pretty much uniquely from the Maltese perspective. Paul doesn't correct him on this, does he? There's nothing about it. This is only what the Maltese are saying to each other. He must be a god. What happened in Lystra when, when they said, oh, Paul and Barnabas are gods? Paul threw a fit. No, 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 don't, don't do that, stop. Look, we're here to tell you about the God. We're of similar nature as you. He, he really stopped them. In this case, we don't get that part. As a matter of fact, Paul never preaches the gospel on Malta in this section. Stop. We know Paul. Do you think Paul never preached the gospel on Malta? He was there for three months. If somebody asks him, where are you going? Why were you out at sea? Can he not preach the gospel? It's impossible. He can't not preach the gospel if they say, well, where are you traveling, partner? I'm going to Rome. Really? Why? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> I was a violent oppressor of the Jews. I was, a, I was opposed to the way. I thought they were wrong. He can't not tell the gospel. So we know. We, I think it's a fair infer, inference to say he, he does tell them about it. But Luke doesn't present it to us right now. He just lets us hang on that. So one of the things that I think we're, we pick up from this is we have to be extraordinarily careful 
trying to determine what God is up to based on our circumstances alone. Remember way back at the beginning of Paul's journey to, to Jerusalem, I said some people think Paul was wrong to go to Jerusalem. He was in, uh, he was, he was in rebellion against God. And, and I had a conversation this week about that very same topic again. Was Paul right to go to Jerusalem? And what you could say, if that's the trajectory, you could say, well, then God sent this storm to, to punish him for not doing what he was supposed to do. We get very Jonah-ish, don't we? Didn't God throw a storm on the sea? That's, that's how it's worded in the Hebrew, is he hurled a storm on the sea because Jonah wasn't going where he was supposed to. And so God was going to interrupt him and stop him. So isn't this the same kind of thing? God's hurling this storm on the sea to stop Paul. Well, no, that's not what's going on. We have more than just the circumstances. But if you only read it based on circumstances, you can get it wrong. They were wrong to begin with when they looked and they said, he must be a murderer because the gods are trying to punish him. And then after he doesn't die, they go, well, he must be a god because the gods can't punish him. If you're looking only at circumstances, you can come up very easily with the wrong conclusion, or you can get either or. You could read it either way. Remember what I said about the storm. Was a God trying to kill him on the sea and he survived? Or did a God come along and deliver him from the storm and he survived? I don't know. So be careful when you try to read the circumstances and say, this is, how, this is what God's feeling right now. This is what God thinks of this. This is God's mad at me because um, my car broke down. It might be God's mercy that your car broke down. You don't know. Don't, don't go there. As Protestants, we have sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority for this stuff. And so when we consider this, we can look at this and say, well, what did Paul have as revelation from the Lord that could help him in this? Well, first of all, um, he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. That was my contention because in Acts 20, 22, it says that Paul was constrained by the Spirit to be in Jerusalem before Pentecost. So he had been told he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. So he doesn't have this, this mindset of, oh, I'm being disobedient. What else was he told about his trip to Jerusalem? It's going to be filled with hardship. Agabus takes his belt, ties him up, and says, this, was, this is what awaits the man who owns this belt. So Paul knew this going into this. So he can look at the situation, and he's not reading it as, wow, this northeaster swept down from Crete and just about wiped us out. God must be mad at me. He's, he's going with what's been revealed. The last week, or um, the week, um, yeah, a couple of weeks ago in, in Acts 23, Jesus himself stood next to Paul and said, as you've testified about the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you'll do in, Jeru in Rome. You're heading to Rome. An angel shows up in the middle of a storm in a raging sea and says, Paul, God's delivered you. You have to be in Rome, and he's given you everybody else with you. So Paul has got divine revelation, not circumstance, telling him this is why this is working. That's why when he gets by, bit by a snake, he doesn't freak out. He doesn't lose it. He's like, this is just par for the court. This is what this trip is going to be like. This is what it's been like so far. It just keeps going. So the islanders are reading circumstances and getting it wrong. Paul is going on revelation and getting it right. He knows he's going there. So in its best tradition, Sola Scriptura can do the same thing for us. It may not give you the detailed answers that you want, but it can give you promises like go and make disciples. And as you're making disciples, know that all power has been given to me and I will be with you for, till the end of the age. That's a huge promise. 
So when we go out and we begin to try to make disciples and we run into difficulty, do we go, oh, God must not be happy with us? No, you've got a clear command. You've got a clear promise. That sola scriptura applied in this case. So we don't want to base our assessment solely on the circumstances, um, it, 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 either good or bad. We, we want to go with what God has revealed to us first and foremost. Now, that doesn't mean that bad circumstances aren't horrible. They are. Cry out to the Lord. Ask others to cry out to the Lord. Um, he wants to hear about that. He wants to hear your, your call to him. So that's the inaccurate assessment. And then Luke drops it. He doesn't say another thing about it. That's the end of that story. So now we get to this point of ministry. Um, in the neighborhood of that place where they had landed, um, were lands that belonged to what's called the chief man of the island named Publius. Now, chief man of the island could be a technical term for the Roman person in charge. This is who the Romans put in charge. It could also be a wealthy landowner. He was the first man. He was the primary man of the island. He's the big deal. Um, so whether it's official or unofficial, by the way, it could be both. Maybe the Romans came in and said, who's the big guy? You? You seem nice. You're in charge. Okay, we're out of here. We don't want to hang out on this little crummy island. Um, so that, that's a possibility is that, that Publius is, is the first on the island, the first man on the island, the, the official. Um, but the point is, whatever, which, whichever way you go, he's a big deal. right? He owns lands around this. He is the first man, the primary guy on the island. Publius is a big deal. And so what happens is Publius um, finds out that the people had landed, he, the word gets to him, and so he invites him. He says, he received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So the big guy on the island reaches out and grabs these folks and says, come and stay with me. Now, was it all 279? No idea. Could be Luke and Paul and his group, maybe the Roman centurion, maybe the big people. Might have been the whole group. If he's that rich, he might have. The point is, the most important person on the island received us and entertained us hospitably. That does not mean that he put on a show for them. <laughs> he didn't have a big screen TV and, oh, you've got to watch this show. He didn't, he didn't stage an act. Entertain means welcome, to, to draw into your house, to show hospita hospitality. Come in, come on in. So that's what happens. He comes in and they're, they're there for three days. They're beginning to recover. They're getting some food. They're getting some rest. They can begin to get on their feet again. Then Luke says, it happened. Um, just coincidence, right? just you know, random happenstance, not anything going on. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And actually fever is plural, with fevers and dysentery. So this man is sick. What he might have had was something called Malta fever, which is not a 1970s disco movie. Um, but it was a real ailment. It was an actual thing that was common in Malta, Gibraltar, and uh, other parts of the Mediterranean, there was, there was this illness. What it was is uh, in 1877, they, dis they discovered that it was caused by Micrococcus melitenesis um, in goat's milk. It was a little microbial thing in the goat's milk from Malta. So as that was shipped around, people would get Maltese fever. Um, they've since developed a vaccine for it, so it's kind of not around anymore. But it was a known sick sickness. Um, it was something that actually happened, and it could last anywhere from three or four months to two or three years. Um, it involved a lot of fever and a lot of illness and that kind of stuff. So that's what his dad probably had was this Maltese fever, the, the Malta fever. Um, probably got it from the goat's milk. Paul comes, and um, it says that um, 
he visited him. So maybe he's in another part of the villa or maybe a different house or something. He visited him and he prayed and he put his hands on him and healed him. So this is the first time in Acts that we've had somebody pray and lay their hands on somebody to heal them. People have prayed, people have laid on hands, people have done other things. This is that first time. Um, this is the vision we always think of when we're healing, probably because the big-haired people on TV do it. They lay hands on people to heal them. But it's not the, the normal way that healing took place. So Paul visits him, and he lays his hands on him, and he heals him. And he, he restores him. He, he's now back to health. Um, this is great news. This is really good, good news, and it spreads. The rest of the people on the island who had diseases came and were cured. That's almost surely hyperbolic language. In other words, it wasn't every single person who had a sniffle. But what it is saying is there were a lot of folks who were ill, who were sick on the island, and they came to Paul, and Paul cured them. Now, one of the things is that word cured is uh, therapeutic. Therapeuo is where we get the word therapeutic from. And so one of the theories is, well, Luke was involved in this, and Dr. Luke was out dishing out medicine and healing people too. Sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah, the problem is that word is also used of miraculous healings. It just means cure. It doesn't mean a medical doctor. So it appears that it is Paul is now performing ministry. He is now healing people. Um, so what do we do with this? Where do we go with this? The people arrived, Luke and, and Paul and all the others arrived in dire need. They didn't arrive on the island and go, oh, hey, great news. We're in charge. We're here to tell you how everything works. We're, we're, you know, aren't you glad we're here for you? They arrived broken people in dire need. And they had to be served. There was no way they were going to survive if the people didn't welcome them and take care of them. They were, they were legitimately in need. And so what Paul does is he receives from the people. He receives the fire. He, he goes into Publius's house and stays there. He receives food. He receives shelter because everything they had has been lost at sea. They, don't, they didn't show up with a ton of money. What they showed up with is a centurion and the promise, we'll come back and repay you. That's it. They didn't have credit cards. They were sunk. So they go and they receive and they receive and they receive. And then when Paul is restored and he's ready to go, then he goes to Publius's father, lays his hands on him and heals him. He brings to them the ministry that they had. So what we see Paul doing here is he's serving like Jesus, which is not, hey, I came here and, and I've got all the right answers. I've got great news. You're dead wrong about everything, and I'm here to tell you how. Aren't you happy? That, that won't receive a welcome audience. They had Paul wrong. They said he was a murderer or a god, and Paul's answer is, I'm neither one. But he starts with this position of need. He starts in this position of weakness. And this is exactly what Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 20, <coughs> it says, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave." even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. So to model Jesus' ministry, to minister like Jesus, is to give away, not to come and, and come and say, we've got it all figured out, we're here for you. So Jesus um, is described in Philippians chapter 2, it says, have this mind also among yourself. This is how Jesus ministered, you should minister the same way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You are to serve, you are to minister like Jesus, which was not from a position of power and authority. Jesus was God. He told Pilate, I could have a legion of angels show up here if I wanted to. But that's not how I came to minister. I came to minister from weakness, from brokenness. I took on the form of a servant, not the form of a reigning king. And, and Paul is telling us here, have this mind in yourself. Approach ministry this way also. So when Paul arrived, he had a lot of needs, and he let those needs be met. He received, he took, he accepted whatever the people had to offer, an unusual kindness, he received it from them. And then from that, he began to minister. So I wish Luke had told us the rest of the story. I wish he had said there was a huge revival that raged across Malta and they all became Christians that afternoon and uh, 10,000 were baptized or something. We don't get that part of the story. What we get is a picture of what it means to minister. So Paul himself in Acts 20, verse 35, quotes Jesus as saying, it is better to give, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So think about how that would affect your ministry. How do you feel about receiving? Because if somebody's going to give, somebody else has to receive. How do you feel about receiving? If somebody comes to you and says, here, let me give you this or let me help you, can you let them experience the blessing of giving by saying, yes, I'll receive that? Or, because we're Americans, funny that Ramey mentioned that. I, I almost snickered when he said that because it's like, yeah, that's in the sermon. Or are we going to be Americans where we're self-sufficient, we can pull ourselves up and do it on our own, and we don't need no help from nobody because we're all sufficient? When you adopt that attitude, especially in the context of the church, you're denying to somebody else the blessing of giving if you won't receive. So that's part of it is, number one, you need to be a kind of person who will receive help because it blesses the other person. Now, the danger of that is there are people who are black holes, and they will suck up everything around them. They will, they are, they've got the receive part down. They are here to bless you because they're just going to take everything you've got to give them. It's, it's, isn't that wonderful that they have this service? Well, the other half of this applies to both people. It is more blessed to give. Are you a giving person? Are you the kind of person that would see a bunch of people stranded on the beach and give to them, go start a fire, bring food, bring clothes and blankets? Would you help them? Are you a giving person? We can't just pick and choose, I'm going to be a giver or a receiver. We have to do both. We have to be the kind of people who are willing to give things away, to give, to give, to give, and also to receive when people give to us. That's, that's what, what um, Jesus is telling us here is this is the blessing. So this is the position that, that um, Paul and the party take when they get to Malta. They are in dire need. They receive he doesn't say, oh, we don't need any help. We've got this. We're, we're gathering some of this, you know, really soaking wet kindling, and somehow we'll get it started in the rain. He receives what they have to offer. It is a blessing. What happens when you minister from that position, when you minister from a position of being a servant, of, of receiving from the other, of giving yourself away, it authenticates the person you're trying to minister to. 
because they don't feel like you're coming in and trying to be superior. You, you honor them by saying, hey, I need some help with this. You know, I'm having a hard time with, with this plumbing problem at my house. Could you come and give me a hand? What you're showing them is I honor you as a person. I respect your intellect. I think you're capable. And so it establishes a parity before you begin to minister. And that's what's happening here is Paul is establishing a parity with the Maltese before he begins to minister to them. Then once he has their attention, once he has their heart, once he has, he has blessed them by receiving, now he begins to give. Let me heal people. And I'm, I'm positive, like I said, there's no way Paul could not have told them the gospel. Let me tell you my story. It's pretty wild. The storm is only the tail end of it. It starts much earlier. Let me tell you what happened. And now how do you think the Maltese are receiving that? They're, they're looking at Paul and saying, oh, hey, we're friends. We've, we've helped. We've worked together. We've, we've done this. Yeah, Paul, tell me about it. I want to hear what your story is. How did this happen? How did you get here? So that friendship that's developed opens gospel ministries. And the way the story ends, the way this, this little bit of the story ends is um, they honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board all that we needed. So that word honor could be terms of respect. You know, they saluted him every time he walked past or something. They, they honored him. But the way Luke uses honor more often is, is in material things. They honored us. They gave us stuff. So as the uh, three months is coming to an end, so if we're in October, November, we're now heading into February, which is about the right time to start sailing again because the, 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 the storms are beginning to calm down. So it's time for them to sail. They say, hey, we got to get, get to Rome. Um, we can't stay here forever. And the Maltese do what they're good at. And they continue to bless. Here, let's load you up. What do you need for this journey? Yeah, it's a short trip across the, the uh, thing here to Italy, but you're going to need some provisions for the road. And so they bless them. They honor them. And they give them everything they're going to need for the journey. And, and that is, I think, a beautiful picture of what ministry can look like when the two wrestle together, receiving and giving honoring and caring for each other instead of adopting a superior attitude of you're wrong about everything and I'm here to explain it to you of saying hey you know I don't know I don't know everything and and I'm willing to receive explain this to me I don't understand this thing F help me fix this thing I'm, I'm weak in this area you know my math skills are, are pretty bad could you help me with this or you know something along those lines it, it's good to offer to the world things and, and like we did uh, Financial Peace University. People need that. I mean, people's finances are horrible. They're just a wreck. And so that's a blessing to give to them. But it also comes from an, it can come across as an attitude of, well, we've got this, this finance thing all figured out. So here, let me tell you how to do it right. What if you go to them and say, hey, we got this Financial Peace University thing and it might be a help to you. But you know what? I could really use a hand with my bathtub. It's backed up and I don't know what to do. It can gain you a hearing. It can make you a little bit more human. So this is this last snapshot of Paul before he gets to Rome is he's ministering like Jesus ministered for weakness, from, from a point of not power and authority, but from weakness. And, and you Maltese have been wonderful to me. You have been such a huge blessing to me. Thank you for everything that you've done. Can I now bless you with something? Can I tell you my story? Isn't that a much more winsome way to approach it? I think it just opens up so many opportunities. And that's the picture we get of Paul. I wish, I wish Luke had written the rest of it. I wish he had told us what happened in Malta. Instead, he goes, and three months later, we left. Ah! 
we've got to finish the book. I think he's heading towards Rome, and so that's why he skips it. But he does stop and tell the story at Malta, doesn't he? He gives us something. He didn't just say, yeah, we stayed on this island for three months, and then we sailed away. Next. So we did learn something from it. Um, one last snapshot for a principle for discipleship of ministering from weakness, ministering from need. That doesn't mean you never answer a question. You never have an answer. You never can tell anything. But it does mean starting with a sense of humility. And, and you remember my definition of humility is seeing yourself as God sees you. God sees all of humanity as each one is a human being, each one is an image bearer. Each one is, a, is worthy of honor and respect because they're made in my image. And so to be humble is to say, Lord, I agree with that. I'm no better off. I am no better personally than the next person because I'm saved. That is pure grace. That's only because of your kindness to me. And so, yes, I can accept help from them. I can minister to them. I can love them. They're equally as human as I am. So that's, I think, our, our discipleship principle from this section. And so next week, we're heading to Rome. And so let's close in prayer. Lord, you've told us that in our weakness, you told us through Paul, as a matter of fact, that in our weakness, your strength is made perfect. And for your strength to be made perfect doesn't mean imperfections or contaminants are removed from it. For your strength to be made perfect is to be shown to be full and complete. When we acknowledge that we're weak, there's more room for you to show your strength. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would make this weakness a hallmark of our ministry because it shows your power more and more. And, Lord, would we rely on that. Father, thank you for this example on Malta of ministering from a position of weakness, of um, the circumstances that raged against Paul did not shut down his ministry. It opened a big door of opportunity for him on Malta so that he could bring healing and restoration to people. And Lord, I pray that we would take advantage of catastrophes in our life, of difficulties in our life, that we would all be ready to share with those around us, whether they're believers or not, the need that we have and the hope that we have together because we need to do both. So Lord, be honored in our service, we pray. Amen.